0: Welcome back to Bible Love, and this is releasing on the Feast of Thanksgiving. So hopefully you've had a lot to eat, hopefully the cowboys are winning, and hopefully your time with family is going well. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Father, we give you thanks for the fruits of the earth and their season and for the labors of those who harvest them. Make us, we pray, faithful stewards of your great bounty. For the provision of our necessities and the relief of all who are in need. To the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
1: Amen. Well, listeners, you're in for a treat on this Thanksgiving day. We have the Reverend Lonnie Lacey, who is the rector of St. Anne's in Tifton, Georgia. So glad you're with us, Lonnie. Um, let me tell you something funny about Lonnie, y'all. Yesterday, he texted me and he was like, I wasn't sure when you were like judges, but you gave me the most bonkers best Part I'm so excited. And I was like, yes, I love it. He's going to show, teach us about Judges, which is great. So this particular part of Judges that we're in is sort of chapters 10 through 16. Um, So welcome, Lonnie. So glad you're here.
2: Hey, y'all. Thank you. Tell us
1: about this bonkerness that we are about. to. Is that a word, bonkerness? Totally. Uh, That we are about to embrace in Judges 10 through 16.
2: Yeah, so um, I'm sure that I have read Judges, you know, at other points in my life. But the last time I really kind of landed on this section in a big way was when we spent the year reading through the whole Bible as a church years ago. And we got to this part, and I, like, in the words of the great poet Gwen Stefani, Y'all, this book is bananas, B-A-N-A-N-A-S. It is
1: bananas.
2: Yeah. um, And uh, just sort of came to it with fresh eyes and a lot of questions about what do you do with a guy like Jephthah and a guy like Samson? And um, I know that y'all talked about Samson a good bit during the overview, um, but, but there 's still a lot to say there and and a lot to say about um, about jephtha and um, and so over the past few years, there have been a couple things that have become kind of guiding principles for me when I read the Bible. Uh, one of them, and I think you 've talked about this before is that you read different parts of the Bible differently. It's not just one book; it's a library. And so, when you're reading a letter from Paul, you read it like a letter. When you're reading, you know, uh, the histories and Kings or Chronicles, you read it maybe like a history. Judges is its own thing. Um, yeah.
1: How do you read it? Like what? What? How, you can't really put it in a in a way like you're saying, like a letter or you know, historical. Story. It's, strange
2: yeah so the way that i think of judges is almost like folkloric tales of power and intrigue that these hebrew families in ancient days were sitting around the fire and telling um, I mean, y'all, these were their movies. You know, they, they, yeah. they couldn't go to the movies. Uh, they didn't have Marvel movies to watch. What they had were the heroes of their faith who were very conflicted, anti-hero heroes in a lot of ways. And when I say that they're folkloric, I I don't mean that they're not true. I am very happy to believe that there was a guy named Jephthah and a guy named Samson and that these things happened. I'm just saying that I would have had a really good time sitting around those campfires with those ancient Hebrew people hearing these stories and getting all caught up in the twists and the turns and the spins of the plot and the good things and the bad things. Um, Oh, I love that. Yeah, Alan. I, Alan do you think like like Walker
1: and Ford would would really get into judges because oh, yes, they like they have, you know, right. or like teenagers? Right, like maybe that's the way to sell this to our youth. So tapes is, this is two weeks in a row
0: with Christian and Matthew. I talked about the Action Bible. This is the Scripture as graphic novel. Mm. Um Deborah and Gideon. Last week there wasn't a whole lot in there. There are several different stories. Once we get into samson and um you know god's enforcer right and these pictures are you know there's a lion look at that and we get in and this is the marvel comic books or like i like the way lonnie you talk about it like historical fiction right not fiction in that it's untrue but that it's people trying to make sense of something um yeah. to yeah. make their lives well, true yeah. you're not right like we're We're talking about like the Patriot, maybe, to where it's realistic but embellished, not like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, where (laughs) – right? Those are two types of historical fiction. Um, Right. One of them is a little closer to reality. So these are people trying to make sense of the stories of the heroes of their faith, and they want them to be otherworldly. They want them to be the biggest and the strongest and the best.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I love the thought of like sitting around the campfire, you know, here like that. Lo- love that imagery. Thank you for that, Lonnie. We can all think about our favorite, you know, Camp Gravit or, you know, wherever that is, Camp Allen. What what did y'all camp in Georgia?
2: Honey Creek. The Honey the Creek. Camping Conference Center of All. If you like okay, salmon, okay. mosquitoes. There you go. Yeah.
1: Envision you know, envision that. Yeah, well keep going. Keep talking to us about it.
2: Okay, well, so so that's kind of guiding principle number one when I'm looking at these stories. The other is something that I learned a few years ago from uh, my friend Fleming Rutledge, who is, I think, one of the uh, best biblical scholars of the Episcopal Church uh, living today. And um, she and I were talking about the Bible, and I said, Fleming, if you could tell me one thing that is the most important thing to help people— in my life to learn and know and understand the Bible. What is it? What's your one guiding principle? And she said, always teach people to look at what God is doing. She -hmm. said, so much of the time we'll look at Jephthah or we'll look at Samson or we'll look at Peter or Paul or Mary or whoever, and we'll identify with them and we'll get so caught up in like the human part of the story. But the really important thing when we're reading the Bible is to actually read between the lines and see okay, what is God doing here? Because that does two things. One, it keeps God as the most interesting character of the Bible, which he is. Mm -hmm. And number two, if you can wire your heart and your mind to be looking for God and God's activity in the pages of Scripture, even if it's not real clear what he's doing, then it wires your heart and your mind to do that in your regular everyday life, too. Yes. It's. I I think of it like um, there's this thing called uh, phantom vibration syndrome. Y'all ever heard of this? Yes. Yeah. So this is where like you're walking along and you swear your cell phone buzzes in your pocket and then you feel for it and you don't have your cell phone with you, but it's because you're so conditioned to be feeling that. Well, if we can condition ourselves to be looking for God we start to see God. And so I'm always looking like with these stories. Yeah. Jephthah, Samson, let's look and see what they're doing. But, but the bigger question is what is God doing? So, um, and God's some, some interesting wackadoodle stuff here too. Um,
1: Before you get into it, do you think the great poet Gwen Stefani would really think that this is bananas? And we need like that theme song playing Alan, somehow. And, I wonder what she'd think of this or any other, like, I mean, Anna said it before, like this needs to be like in the movies. It's just crazy. It's crazy time. Bananas. Yeah.
2: yeah. Next time I talk to Gwen, I'm going to ask her. Yeah. Uh, be
1: sure and ask her. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to hear her thoughts.
2: <laughs> so, so here's kind of what I think is important when we're looking at these stories and judges that it starts out, you know, if we're going to ask, all right, what is God doing? God is trying to form a nation, and he's been in the long game of this for a long time since Abraham moving forward on through Moses, on through Joshua. And he's like, y'all, I have chosen you to be my people, to be a light to the world. I'm doing a thing with you. But then like right off the gate, just like has happened a million times already up to this point, chapter 10, verse 6, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord worshiping other gods. So God is trying to form this nation. He's trying to put boundaries around them and say, y'all, it's, it's you and me, kiddo. We're, we're it together. And they keep saying, yeah, sounds good. And then going off and worshiping other gods. So poor old God is beating his head against the wall. And I think it's important to remember that's where God's heart and mind are. He's trying to form a people and they are just, you know, rebellious little teenagers toddlers even, making life difficult. So every time he raises up one of these judges, it has something to do with him trying to form his people and to bring them back. Uh, So right there in 10, uh, early on in chapter 10, verse 14, he he finally throws up his hand and says, fine, go try those other gods, see how that works out. Uh, Like the great prophet Dr. Phil says, how's that working out for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. this is where we get Jephthah. Uh and y'all, I had forgotten all about Jephtha until you asked me to look at this, and th- this stuff is nuts. So <laughs> Jephthah, he's the illegitimate son of a prostitute. Uh, he is he is John Snow. He has been cut out from his family. He got I'm, there's going to be a lot of pop culture references when you get Uncle Father Line. Yeah, the-
1: I love it.
2: Um, Grows up to be a mighty warrior, though, and so the Ammonites come, and they start to make war against Israel uh, because God has said, you know, fine, I'm, I'm giving up on y'all for a little bit. The Israelites come to Jephthah and say, hey, you're strong. You're a good warrior. You want to help us out with this little problem we have with the Ammonites? And he's like, y'all are the ones who kicked me out because I'm illegitimate, and now you want me? He says you're calling right.
1: back. Yeah.
2: He says, I'll make you a deal. If you let me back in, yes, I will help you out. So he goes to the Ammonites. They're angry about some land disputes. He tries some diplomacy. It doesn't work. They go to war. But here's where the story gets crazy. He makes a vow and he says, God, if you give me victory, I will sacrifice the very first thing that comes a walking out of my house when I return home from battle. And the thing is that the way that property was back then, maybe it could have been an animal. You know, it could have been a little little lamb or a donkey stumbling out into the courtyard. You never know when there's going to be a loose chicken, but it was his daughter. And so think about that. If you are one of these Hebrew people in the ancient days sitting around the campfire and you're hearing this story being passed down to you for the first time, Plot's going and going and going, and then bum, 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 who comes dancing out of the house, but his sweet one and only baby girl. Y'all, that is some M. Night Shyamalan-level twist right there.
1: It ain't no chicken. It ain't no chicken.
2: (laughs) And what's crazy, and what I really honestly can't wrap my head around, uh, is that he's, I mean, he's, he's mournful. He's sad. He's desperate. He tells her, he's like, baby girl, I made a deal with the Lord and, and now I'm going to have to do this. And the way the Bible tells it, so matter of factly, she says, all right, daddy, I get it. Let me go off on a two month sabbatical. Let me bewail my virginity because it's a dishonor to die as a virgin and I'll come back and we can make this thing happen. And they do. And like with half a sentence it says, and then he, he made good on his vow he sacrificed his daughter.
1: And, and, and let's talk about that half a sentence, because I thought that was really inter- right? interesting, too. Like, it's it's not, it's it's just, just like this little passing thought there a little bit. Like, yeah, he's going to fu- do what he said he was going to do. And yeah. no, like, grievance. No, like, I can't believe I'm having to do this. No, No, like, I'm so sorry. You know, it's just... Very interesting, yeah. To me, that, that doesn't get a lot of play,
2: yeah. You know, yeah. Well, I remember uh, when I was sitting in the chapel in seminary years ago, and Martha Horn, who was our dean, she was preaching somewhere around Advent, and uh, and it was the um, the visitation where Mary goes to her cousin Elizabeth's house and they're both pregnant, and the way it's written in the gospel, it says something like. And then she hung around for uh, a few weeks and then went back home. And I remember Dean Horn saying, This is how you know that that uh, book was written by a man. Because yeah. there is no, they just sat around for a little bit and went home. Think of all the stories they would have told. Think of all the emotion. Think of all that. And so that's part of how, when we read the Bible, when you get these little half sentences that just kind of shove all the emotion away, all the, all the thick of the story and just moves you along with the plot. We as readers have to kind of sort of pause for a second and say, what would that have been like? Right. What would that have been like for Jeff? Because he doesn't seem to be a bad dude, Um, but he does seem to believe that making good on his vow to God is really, really important. And that is a vow I cannot understand. But part of the Hebrew mindset back then was the words that come out of your mouth are binding. If the mm-hmm. Lord God, in whose image you were created, created the entire universe using nothing but his words, then words have the power to create and destroy. They are binding. And the Hebrew people took that really seriously to the yeah. point where his little chicken baby um, is no longer there. Yeah. I don't like that, uh, but there it is. It, I had a, a friend, a priest friend, who used to say, if you're looking for family values, don't go looking in the Bible. And I think yeah. it's passages like this that he's talking about. Um, right. But I so think really, something there that's really important uh, to remind ourselves, especially as we read the Old Testament how words really did matter. And y'all have already seen that in your journeys through, like with um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, you know. So poor, poor Jephthah's daughter. Then something else happens. And I'm just going to keep on going, but y'all stop. Yeah, keep going. Keep going. Listen, audience, we got a lot to talk about here. So I say Jephthah's not a bad dude, but then comes the shibboleth test. Did y'all read this? Yes. Y'all bonkers. But this thing has happened more than once in the history of the world. So... The Ephraimites pick a fight with Jephthah, and Ephraimites, they're part of Israel. I mean, they're they're part of our gang, you know. But they say, hey, dude, why didn't you take us into battle with you? And he says, y'all, I called you. I asked you, and you didn't pick up the phone. And so they're in this tiff, and things escalate. And Jephthah knocks the Ephraimites back, and he starts to take control of their border. And the way he does it is he applies the shibboleth test. Mm-hmm. And we don't even really know what that word means. It may mean like a grain of wheat. It may mean a current of water. What we do know that matters is that the Ephraimites, with their accent, could not pronounce the S-H sound. They could only pronounce the S sound. And so if anybody tried to cross the border, um, Jephthah's instructions to his guys were if they, if you ask them to pronounce it and they say sibilith, you strike them dead right there. And they killed 42,000 people on the spot. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't even want to bring this part of the story up because just—I mean it's just sad and weird and I don't know what to do with it. But we, uh, in my diocese, we have a companion relationship with the Diocese of the Dominican Republic. I've spent a lot of time in the Dominican Republic. And part of their history was under a dictator named Rafael Trujillo. Mm-hmm. And he was very, very anti-Haitian uh, in the same way that like Hitler was anti-Jew, Trujillo was anti-Haitian. Haitians speak French, Dominicans speak Spanish. They had a time in October of 1937 where they did this very thing. This is not ancient history. This is yeah. this is only a few um, decades back. And it was called the Parsley Massacre because... His rule was if somebody's trying to cross the border, hold up a piece of parsley and ask them what if what it is. If they are Spanish-speaking, they'll be able to announce it "perejil" with that R that sounds like a D and that J that sounds like an H. If they're French-speaking, it'll be persil, and it's very hard to pull it off if you speak one or the other. And, y'all, they killed 35,000 people in, yeah. in a month. And so... I think sometimes when we see some of this stuff going on in the Bible, it's not that the Bible is condoning it. It's that it is part of the human story. And some of it ought to be there to help us remember that these things ought not to happen ever, ever, ever again. There is no good served by uh, putting these kind of tests on people and killing them on the spot. And yet it's it's happened in the modern world and we've gotta we've gotta guard against this kind of thing.
1: Well I think that's such an important point to make, Lonnie, because I think, you know, as as Alan and I have been journeying through this and inviting all our cool friends to, you know, be a part of it, you know, we we have been um not so great about how we read the Bible sometimes. Like we're like, this is what it says. This is what we should do. We, you know, t- there's been a lot of people that have taken it very literal, you know, and and used it in very negative ways. Oh, I can go start a war, just like the Haiti and the Dominican Republic. I mean, there, who knows? That could have been part of their thought process, right? Well, it's in the Bible. It's in Judges. I can go do it, you know. Um, And I think it's such an important point that you just made that, you know, it isn't all about just learning these stories, but maybe things we could do differently, you know, and that God has still stayed transparent and there and a part of it, even though God gets frustrated, which God clearly, clearly, clearly does. Um, and so I, I just appreciate that point. Um, I think that's one a lens we need to really think about what but were you going to say,
0: Alan? It makes me think of, you know, we've already talked about the prophet Gwen, the prophet Phil. Mm-hmm. And so this brings to mind the words of the pro- prophet Jed Bartlett. Um, there's <laughs> yeah. a great episode uh, of the West Wing. Alan's Church.
1: always going to do this, uh, a listener. I, no, my, always going to bring West Wing in. It was
0: in, in my, notes, you, you read my, my notes, Alan. My encyclopedic knowledge of West Wing is a little embarrassing. But there's an episode called Shibboleth where there's people escaping Um the communist regime, Chinese folks who are trying to get to safety and they come on shore and they're being held and they're claiming um, religious persecution because they're Christians. Um, and so Jed invites the leader of this group to come to the West Wing and there's this beautiful scene, I'll link to it, where they talk about and Jed wants to give them religious cle- clemency, but there's questions about, you know, the question is asked in the episode, are they faking it? These people are trained to fake it. So Jed, in this conversation with this man, he starts to ask questions about, name the 12 disciples, and the guy can list them off. He says, who's the head of your church? And this guy says, the head of our church is Jesus Christ. Our pastor is so-and-so. Right? And so this guy has a depth of answers. But then this guy turns it on the president and says, you're looking for a shibboleth. He yeah. uses that word and says, you're looking for evidence of a faith that can't be seen. And it's this idea that we read the Bible and we look for evidence of something that can't be seen. And so we project onto the pages of Scripture maybe what we want to see, right? Um Rather than using it as a mirror by which we see other things, like what you were talking about, training ourselves to see God at work, not forcing the Bible to be God at work the way we want it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, perfectly said! And I have goosebumps. That is hands down my favorite episode of The West Wing. So uh, I'm so glad you brought in the the Prophet Jed.
1: Um, Alan, you should also link on this the podcast you did where you like broke down a West Wing episode. Yeah. Um, the the one with um. The funeral at um, Two the National Cathedral, yeah, um, so yeah, I, we're just pop culturing it up around here um, that right. makes me excited. So, tell me what else you got
2: let 's take it home with the pop culture stuff with Samson now um, <laughs> I, I, you know i 'm a faithful listener to Bible love now, so I know that uh, Anna Brawley already really unpacked a whole lot of good samson stuff so so again i 'm coming from all right, but what is God doing samson 's doing crazy stuff what 's God doing? Israel has done evil. God has let them now fall into the hands of the Philistines. What we need to know, though, is that gets stated at the beginning of the Samson story, is that God has a plan. He's not going to leave them there forever. And, you know, look, listeners... If if your Uncle Father Lonnie can, can convince you of anything, the thing I want everybody in the world to know is that God always has a plan. He is never going to leave us bereft forever. And so has that happened in Samson? This child promised to a barren couple the deal with the angel who promises him is he's got to be a Nazarite, which means he is set aside for a holy purpose. Can't drink booze, can't cut his hair, uh, can't do a whole lot of things. And y'all, he breaks it all. Samson is awful. He is a brute, a cad, a rogue, a womanizer, a swindler, a scoundrel, a mischief maker, a trickster. I, if we have any Marvel fans out there, if y'all haven't already tuned out, um, I think he is like the worst combination of Loki and Thor. He's got... Ors like brawn and no brains. He's got Loki's selfish deceitfulness, doesn't give a rip about the rules. He has no regard for his Nazarite vow. He tricks his parents into eating food from a carcass, which is bad when you are a faithful Jewish family. He catches 300 foxes, ties them in pairs by their tails with torches between them, lets them loose to set fire in the Philistine fields. That's just crazy bonfire storytelling right there. He uses a dried up jawbone of a donkey to murder a thousand men. Again, he's not supposed to be touching dead things. That's part of the Nazarite thing. So he's using a dead thing to make more dead things. And then there's the whole belabored tale that goes on and on and on and on about how the prostitute Delilah finally coaxes him out of the secret of his power, which in some weird way is his hair. Once they cut his hair, he's weakened and the Philistines are able to capture him and gouge his eyes out. Okay, great storytelling, but where's the payoff? The big finish comes at the end. All of that is just intrigue. Here's where it gets really good. The Philistines, now that he's all weakened and he's blind, they're throwing a big old party and they're inviting 3,000 of their strongest people. And they have this whole banquet home. They say, you know what? Let's go get Samson and get him to come in here and entertain us. He's now belittled to the point of being like the jester or the fool. And yet, this is where knowing a little bit of the biblical language can make the story even better. The word for entertain that they use in Hebrew is sachak. Everybody say that with me. Sachak.
1: Sachak.
2: Very good. The word for crush is shachak.
1: Ooh.
2: Oh, you've got sachak, entertain, and crush, shachak. So they say, get him to come and shachak us. And in the old days, that little dot that lets you know whether it was a sa or a sha was not was not printed. It wasn't included. You just had to know. So did he come to entertain them or did he come to crush them? Crush them. Oh, y'all, he came to do it all. So he goes in having been brought low. He's now, you know, mostly weak. Cause hair's growing back a little bit. So maybe he's got a little power. He says, Lord, give me this one last victory and I will sacrifice myself to finish off the Philistines. And with his last little bit of strength, He pushes the pillars of the house. And this is gruesome and awful. I'm not saying this is good, but he kills 3,000 Philistines. And it says in the Bible that with his death, he defeated more than he did in his life. This, y'all, is Tony Stark sacrificing himself with the Infinity Stones. I'm spoiling all the movies. I hope you all are all up on your pop culture. You had the whole pandemic to watch those movies. This is Hodor holding the door in Game of Thrones. This is Spock sacrificing himself for the Enterprise. This is Randy Quaid flying into the spaceship in Independence Day. But most of all, this is somebody going into the belly of the beast to take it down from within, knowing he's not going to come out alive. What what this is, y'all, is this is a foretaste of what the Lord Jesus Christ will do. Uh, I've got goosebumps again. Um, Tony Stark gives me goosebumps. Jed Bartlett gives me goosebumps. Yep. But the Lord Jesus gives me extra goosebumps. There's There's a writer who I really like named Chad Bird. And in his book, Unveiling Mercy, which is a neat little daily devotional where he looks at different Hebrew words in the Bible. He says about this, he says, For all his faults, Samson fulfilled his vocation of delivering Israel with great gusto and sacrifice, He killed more of the enemy by dying than he had killed by living. We see here a preview of the Redeemer himself, talking about Jesus, by whose sacrifice all our foes have been crushed underfoot so that we, not the devil, might have the last laugh. This ought to be a reading at the great vigil of Easter where we see where Jesus does what only Jesus can do, Jesus, who is not Samson, who is so much better than Samson, uh, who is not selfish, who is not a brute, goes into the belly of the ultimate beast of sin and death and gives up himself so that he can pull down the pillars of death itself so that we don't have to worry about it anymore. You want to talk about what is God doing in this story? God's not just in the background using the unlikely Samson to defeat the Philistines and redeem Israel. God in the long run is using the unlikely Jesus to go in and to redeem all of us. And y'all, that is, that is worth the price of admission right there.
1: I mean, I don't know what else to say. That is amazing. All The only other thing I have to say is thank you, Lonnie. I hope that you all get goosebumps about Jesus today <laughs> and every day. And remember that we love you, but most importantly, God does.